Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 26, recorded live on October 7th, 2011, Kol As we begin Yom Kippur, we move from the raucous sound of the shofar to listen to the haunting melody of Kol Nidre. As we listen, it is hard to resist the urge to pause for self-reflection. Rabbi Shalom discusses the benefit of personal honesty as we reflect. In the days when the judges judge, over 3,000 years ago, a famine strikes the Hebrew town of Beit Lechem, the house of bread, or Bethlehem. A man and his wife and their two sons move to Moab, the land of a bitter enemy of the Hebrews, the Moabites. In Moab, the sons marry local Moabite girls. In the end, they cannot flee death. The man and his sons die, and the three widows, mother and two daughters-in-law, begin to return to Bethlehem. One daughter-in-law listens to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and turns back to her family, but Ruth refuses. Ruth tells Naomi, your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you go, I will go, and where you die, I will be buried there. This is love and support beyond expectation. Does it matter that it probably never happened? No. And yes. This Jewish New Year, we are living truth, speaking truth, acting truth. It is hard enough to discover and admit the truth about ourselves to ourselves, but we must then try to live the truth with other people. How often in mythology do we see the hidden face, Oedipus, whose parentage is concealed to tragic results, unknowingly killing his father, marrying his mother, and giving Freud grist for his mill. (laughs) Odysseus, who returns home but must disguise his true identity. Even the Hebrew god Yahweh. We are told in the Torah that Moses is an extraordinary prophet, the only one to know God face to face. Even though elsewhere in the same Torah, it insists that no one, not even Moses, could see God's face and live. The first time Moses meets Yahweh, Moses sees only a burning bush, and Yahweh claims that no one has known his name before. Never mind the fact that earlier stories in Genesis do use the name. Later writers got the final word on name or no name. Later readers decided that even if the text shows the name Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, as we pronounce it Yahweh, the name should not be pronounced because it is too holy and too powerful. Adonai, my Lord, or Hashem, the name, much safer. It's another version of he who must not be named. (laughs) And whether the name is Yahweh or Voldemort, we are not afraid to see the man behind the curtain, even if it is us. When Naomi returns to Bethlehem, She says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, bitterness, for God has made my life bitter. We see disguises elsewhere in the five scrolls, those later books in the Hebrew Bible that are studied less than the Torah, but may well be more interesting to us. 
Esther hides her Jewishness and even her Hebrew name Hadassah. King Solomon is claimed to be the author of both Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes, even though they were likely written centuries later. Yahweh is the main character of the Torah, but the five scrolls mostly focus on human beings and their challenges. Naomi becomes Mara, but everyone knows she's really Naomi. Ruth supposedly converts to worship the Hebrew God, but for the rest of the book, she's always called Ruth the Moabite. Ruth finds a kinsman of her dead husband to marry her and thus keep the inheritance in the family, but she hides at the foot of his bed to get his attention. Ultimately, Ruth the Moabite becomes the great-grandmother of King David, who himself undergoes transformations, secretly anointed the future king in his ancestral hometown of Bethlehem, a loyal soldier of King Saul and scourge of the Philistines, a mercenary soldier for the Philistines, and then king of Israel and founder of a dynasty. The heir of the line of David is the unseen and so far never arriving Moshiach ben David, the Messiah son of David, as in the Passover song Eliyahu Hanavi. And now you know, by the way, why another legend has a Messiah born in Bethlehem. The real disguise of Ruth is the book itself, and unlocking that disguise will also give us insight into our true relationships. In 500 BCE, in real history, Ezra the priest returned from exile to rebuild Jerusalem. One of the first steps Ezra demanded was to clean up the neighborhood, and here is what he said. You have trespassed and have married foreign women to increase the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to Yahweh, the God of your fathers, and do his pleasure, and separate yourself from the people of the land and from the foreign women. The truth about Ruth is not that she really lived when the judges judged, but that Ruth is a rebuttal to Ezra. Ruth was a foreign woman from a people who were ancient enemies of Israel, according to the Torah, not to be admitted to Yahweh's congregation for many generations. But Ruth the Moabite was exemplary in her loyalty and devotion to Naomi and also to her dead husband's family. Ruth the Moabite was even the ancestor of King David. Some Jews are afraid of intermarriage in the abstract, but no one marries a Catholic. They marry John or Mary. And when you meet John or Mary, you realize that they are wonderful, nice people who love your son or your daughter and who make them happy. Marry a Moabite? Never. Mary Ruth? Wonderful. <laughs> Here is the point. There is a crucial difference between projecting our fears and our hopes onto an undeserving other and a true relationship. We humans are masters of projection, seeing what we want to see or need to see far more easily than what is really there. We imagine that the echo of our own voice is really someone else. We imagine that the universe works the way we want it to work, the way we need it to work, or at least the way we think we need it to work. We imagine that something must be listening if we are talking. Therefore, first we have to get inside of our own heads, turn off the projector, and then see what we can really see. After all, 
Each of us has our own individual issues. Now, in a relationship, I have to deal with my issues, and I have to deal with your issues, and how your issues affect my issues, and how my issues affect your issues, and then we have our issues, and now we're supposed to be raising kids with all of those issues? What chance do we have? We have to admit that when it comes to relationships, we are not rational. It might be rational, consistent with individual survival and self-interest, to abandon a lifetime spouse with terminal cancer or advanced Alzheimer's. But unless you're Pat Robertson, few would suggest it. I once married a couple where the groom had been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. They had been together for over 15 years. They had no intention of ever getting married. And then he became sick. She had no legal ties to him, but she loved him. He wanted to make sure she had some security and social security, and they had already shared a life together. I married them in their living room. It was a good day for him. He was able to get up and stand up for the ceremony. They played a Beatles song they both loved. They each read a poem chosen for the other, and they shared original words of love and promises. And it was a private beauty, just the three of us. I got a call a few months later. He was in the hospital near the end. We held his memorial service at the Newberry Library on New Year's Day. And we shared the story of their life together. And two of their friends read their vows to each other that no one beyond the three of us had ever heard. It was tragically beautiful. Trying to console the widow, I suggested that at least she had had a chance to say goodbye, a chance to say what needed to be said. She corrected me. I had a lifetime of things I wanted to say, she told me. Love and support, generosity, these are not simply rational calculations. In the story of Ruth, her kinsman Boaz is impressed by Ruth's loyalties, her loyalty to the family of her dead husband and her loyalty to their traditions of legal inheritance, but also her loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Loyalty is a sign of true love. We say you are being true to each other. I'll give you another lighter example. Have you ever noticed odd parallels between your husband and your father? or between your wife and your mother. Now, we may not want to admit it to ourselves, and it's probably not a good idea to point it out to your spouse. <laughs> and I am not suggesting that Freud was right. But there is something to our precognitive experiences that sets patterns. And we have to admit the reality that some of what we love in our partner, we've seen somewhere else before. Now, did Ruth's new husband, Boaz, look like her dead husband or remind her of him? Or did he look like her Moabite father? So what if he did? If your parent or your previous partner was a nice and generous person, must you choose someone cruel just to prove you've moved on? If we love and admire our parents, there's nothing Oedipal about finding people like them. Now, whether our partners get along with our parents is a totally different question. We are not fully rational in our relationships. 
even as we aspire to finding the truth about them. I don't have any magic solutions to finding a true relationship, and neither does anyone else, despite the advertising. Jewish tradition imagined that everyone had a bashert, one soul uniquely suited to yours. And when you found your love, it was bashert. It was kismet, fate, meant to be. In the Talmud, a Roman noblewoman asked Rabbi Yosei what God had been doing since creating the universe. And he answered, making matches. She questioned him on this, and he said, you try it. And she failed. I always wondered why your Bashert always happened to be living near you. <laughs> what if she were a Chinese peasant or an African queen? The trick is the difference between a perfect match and the best match. Sometimes we have to learn to adjust our demands to who our loving partner really is, and not who we are or who we imagine them to be. My domestic situation improved drastically when we realized my wife was much better at managing multiple calendars than I was. More recently, thank you, smartphones, for helping with that. You see, what you have to do is calibrate your expectations appropriately based on who they really are. Expecting fancy gifts when your partner shows love by doing nice things is like speaking two different languages. So you can either look forward to perennial disappointment he forgot my half-birthday again. <laughs> or you can find pleasant surprises when reasonable expectations are exceeded. I am not suggesting that you should put up with inappropriate or unloving treatment, or that you never work to fix problems in your relationship, or that you should never improve yourself, or never encourage your partner to self-improvement. Far from it. Those are all important to a growing and healthy relationship. What I am suggesting is that a true relationship means that you work with what you have rather than imagine you have something else. If one of you has an issue with the relationship, it's an issue for both of you. You can't just say that's your problem, you fix it. A true relationship is like a suspension bridge. It needs support from both sides. Ruth supports Naomi. And then in turn, Naomi advises and supports Ruth. At the same time, a true relationship involves risk. And the greater the risk, the greater the possible reward. I hesitate to draw a lesson from the stock market. But maybe you'll take personal advice and not stock advice. If you want greater return, you have to be willing to face more risk. You can invest just a little of yourself into a relationship but you won't get much out of it. The more you risk, the more of yourself you put into your connection with someone else, the more of yourself you give, the more open you become. The more you risk being hurt if things crash. But you are also open to the tremendous joys of a reciprocated relationship. Having the courage to experience our emotions requires an openness to risk. But in the end, that is what makes us human. You have to risk money to make money, and you have to risk love to experience love. Now, you may think it's crass to compare relationships to money, but it does connect us again with the story of Ruth. Ruth is unable to marry Boaz, the kinsman of choice, 
to maintain her dead husband's line because there is another closer kinsman who has a claim on her and her associated property first. By publicly removing his sandal, this other kinsman transfers his rights to Boaz. If only it were that easy to sell property today. Of course, Ruth went along with the land. I apologize for treating Ruth as property, but I'll remind you that traditional marriages were not for love. They were arranged marriages for property and prestige. They were not personal choices based on free consent. Remember the Fiddler on the Roof song, Do You Love Me? To mix the lyrics, the response is, what's love got to do with it? <laughs> In the year 1000, European Jews living among monogamous Christians imposed a 1,000-year ban on polygamy. If you do the math, it did expire a few years ago. <laughs> Sephardic Jews in the Muslim world, on the other hand, could imitate Muslim practice and marry more than one wife until modern times. So defending traditional marriage when describing single marriage by choice for love with equal property rights is not looking much past the wedding photo. You see, no person, no relationship is an island. Our relationships always exist in the complex context of our families, our friends, our communities, our religious and cultural traditions. The honeymoon is over. We are not in it alone, reinventing the wheel. We have each other to learn from, to cry with, to be together. Friends provide perspective, family provides experience, community provides connections, heritage provides strength and depth. We find all of these things here at Kol Hadash in humanistic Judaism. Just as a relationship is a bridge that needs support from both sides, so too is a community. Kol Hadash is here on Yom Kippur because Kol Hadash exists all year. If we were not here all year, we would not be here tonight. We love guests, and we embrace those who are open to a true relationship, those who take the risk of investing time and energy and commitment in us. There is so much return for so little risk. I encourage you to ask yourself, what is my true relationship with this community? Can it be mine? Can it be more? Ezra the priest, envisioned an exclusive community that drove people away, where everyone was the same. Same ethnicity, same accepted history, same religion, same beliefs. The Book of Ruth describes a welcoming community that takes in new people and welcomes back old friends. When Ruth has a son, it is Naomi's neighbors who welcome him. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a near kinsman, and let his name be famous in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse to it. The women, her neighbors, gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they named him Oved. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. It is not recorded what Ruth thought of the name Obed, but the point is to emphasize that the community welcomes new life. When I celebrate a baby naming, I welcome the child into the Jewish family 
whether or not both partners are Jewish. You see, you can be part of more than one family at once. Obed's heritage was half Moabite, whether or not Ruth taught him to celebrate Moabismus. <laughs> Here tonight, we are part of the Jewish family, by birth or by marriage, by friendship or by community. When we honor our five-year members of the congregation, we give them a Kol Hadash coffee mug. The joke is that Kol Hadash is like the mug. You get out of it what you put into it. That is true of family. That is true of community. That is true of our most intimate relationships. You get out of it what you put into it. No one can force you open. No one can make you invest your emotional capital in someone else or in a community or in yourself. Bread or famine, alone or together, the choice is yours. Shana Tova, a happy and healthy new year. That was Rabbi Adam Shalom of Kol Hadash Humanistic Congregation. More information about Kol Hadash, Rabbi Shalom, and humanistic Judaism can be found on our website, kolhadash.com, K-O-L-H-A-D-A-S-H.com. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.